Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 26, 2017. I'm your host, Dave McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Season's greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, well, got a good show. And first off, but before we even mention our guest, um, if you're listening live for some reason, you're like, what in the world are they doing on a Tuesday afternoon? Obviously, it was Christmas Eve during our normal time slot. We decided that being with our families and you being with your families as listeners was more important than going live. And so we took the um, opportunity to shift the show to a different time. But the great thing about that is is that uh, one of our best guests that we've had on frequently, it makes it real convenient for him to come on at a time slot like this, so we want to just right at the start of the show, welcome back, I don't know how many times to the show from Daily Co's, Mr. Jeff Singer. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. It's great to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. Hope your holidays are going good. Yep, definitely. Yes, well, um, we've had an exciting political year in 2017, I guess in many ways a more hopeful one, and we hope that leads into bigger things in 2018. And let's start out with kind of the most hopeful election of all. Uh, there was a bunch of wins all across the country, but to win in a state like Alabama with a Democrat defeating – I mean, this is a Democrat who's accomplished things in Doug Jones um, with his prosecution record of the church bombings and then defeating a candidate like Roy Moore, which is right out of the Trump playbook. What a win. And, Jeff, my question – and, of course, you can respond to the total victory and give your analysis – but also, is this something that we can replicate other places, or is this a Roy Moore-specific thing? Um, there are definitely things we should be looking at to replicate. I mean, this was, as you said, an incredibly strange election. You're not going to have circumstances like this presumably happening all the time, or even most of the time. But there are things I think we should be looking at for, for what Doug Jones did. One thing I really... I really want to emphasize is after the election, there was all this talk of, well, what won it for Jones? Was it black turnout? Was it winning over Republican upscale voters? And it was, it was both those things and many more. And one of the things that always bugs me is people are always asking, well, should Democrats be focusing more on their base, more on black voters, more on Hispanic voters, or winning over people who might have backed Republicans in the past? And I think Jones shows it's not an either-or kind of thing. You can do all these kind. You can do all these with one candidate, and you should be trying these. It's how much you emphasize one thing or another. That's going to vary campaign by campaign. But the idea that you just need to take one path and just ignore all the everything else, I think Jones's win shows you don't need to do that. You can you can go after swing voters. You can go after people who have voted Republican in the past and maybe aren't interested in doing this. You can focus on your base. There's just so much you can and should be doing, and it's not just one or the other. Yes. Now, talk, talk about some of those counties. Uh, you know, if you look at the 2016 Jefferson County, where Birmingham is, went Democratic, and then there's a line of counties across the south part of the state that includes Montgomery that had gone Democratic, but then nowhere else in the state did. But in this map, there were counties dotted all along uh, the state, Tuscaloosa, Lee counties, which both of the big universities are in, Huntsville went Democratic, uh, uh, Mobile, all these different places. And so you could tell it was a very different-looking map visually. But I want to talk about a county that stayed red, but over the past few cycles has gotten more and more Democratic, um, even though Republicans still managed to win it. And that's Shelby County, and that's the, the big suburban county of Birmingham where it's been very Republican – um, it's more of your better educated, 
uh, but still Republican-leaning voters that may work in Birmingham but live outside of Birmingham. Do you have any analysis on why that county in particular has transformed uh, cycle by cycle, irregardless of Roy Moore being on the ballot? Well, I do think part of it was Roy Moore. Trump won, I think, about over a little bit more than 70% of the vote in Shelby County. So normally, at least, it was very, very red turf. But it did have – it's a very, very – it's a very upscale county, especially for um, that region. has a lot of well-educated voters, kinds of voters who maybe didn't even like Roy Moore to begin with. One thing about Roy Moore that a lot of political reporters in Alabama pointed out is – Pretty much everyone in Alabama, even before the accusations that came out, they had a very strong opinion about Roy Moore. He was some he was someone everyone knew about, and he has he has a base which pretty much stuck with him. More religious voters, rural voters, but the suburbs weren't really ever part of his base, and you can kind of see that if um, you look at the his last election before this, the 2012 election where he got back on the Supreme Court. He won about 52% of the vote against a Democrat, and this was a partisan election also. So you had about 40% of the state, even as they were overwhelmingly going for Mitt Romney, about 40% voted for a Democrat who had a D on, on the ballot. And a lot, of, a lot of these areas that really went against Roy Moore this time, we could see them not – we could see them splitting their tickets between Romney and between – and against Roy Moore. Um, for the Democrat Vance, I believe is his name, in the Supreme Court race. So it wasn't. I don't think Shelby was as dramatic, but you could definitely see some of the murmurings that they liked someone like Romney, they didn't like someone like Roy Moore. And Shelby, as you said, Roy Moore still won it, but it's one of those upscale southern areas that Democrats, I think we're going to be looking at a lot more in 2018 for a lot of these places, especially around Georgia, um, parts – other parts of the South, but it's, it's going to be interesting. Yes. Well, I can continue asking you questions probably about this race or many other things you've written about, but I'm going to be fair to Tim and Catherine and pass it along, and they're going to come back to me a little later. Uh, Tim, questions for Jeff? Well, good evening, Jeff. I guess you're up there in snow country and frigid territory today. Huh? <laughs> yep, but it'll be, worse. it'll be worse tomorrow, so... Oh, yikes. <laughs> well, um, look, you've, you've written recently about a state I want to ask you about, and that's about the state of Pennsylvania. Now, Trump, of course, shockingly won that state last year. But now, as you are writing and, and others are tuning in on, Democrats are starting to win local elections in places that they haven't won in like 200 years since the time of uh, of Jefferson uh, uh, with the Republican uh, with the Democratic Republicans and and, and they've even won in a couple of places they've never won before in down ballot races. What is happening there? Are we looking at the beginning of a blue blitz that will affect the federal level races in that state next year? I actually hope so, and we might be. Um, as you were saying, a lot of these Pennsylvania counties, they've been swing territory or voting Democratic in statewide elections, but down ballot really stubbornly red. But in November, we saw some really crazy things. We saw in Chester County, Democrats swept pretty much every every county office that year. And the last time they did anywhere close, close to that, well, there wasn't a Democratic Party. It was 1799. And you have other parts like um, Bucks County. That's home to a really swingy district there. Democrats mm-hmm. won. Democrats did by far their best since the 70s. And in Delaware mm-hmm. County, I believe that Republicans still hold the county council, but Democrats unseated an incumbent for, I think, the first time in maybe ever, at least a very long time. And What's interesting about all this is, so back in 2006, Democrats did really well in areas like this against Bush, but these offices didn't even flip then. And then when 2010 rolled around, Republicans got those congressional districts they lost back, and here we are today where we're trying to get them back again. So if you have a lot of the suburban areas that were starting to go blue when Bush was president and kind of came back, and now they're finally going 
all the way, that that will be a game changer. And mm-hmm. what what I what I oh. said was what I said if if Trump is causing this and there's just so many there's just too many flips in November to think that this was just all because we just had an unusually strong split of candidates this time or it was just a bunch of local issues. There was definitely something big going on here. Yeah. And and fa- and, and far our far listeners from outside uh, of that area that don't know it that well, are we talking about a big breakthrough here in the Philadelphia suburbs, the moderate Republican areas around that? Yes. Um, yeah, definitely. The county is encircling Philadelphia and these uh-huh. areas, um, these areas, they've been, they've been starting to go more democratic and presidential and statewide elections than before, but they've been pretty uh-huh. stubbornly Republican for congressional districts. Um, Democrats took a bunch, took a few in 2006 and held them in 2008 then lost them in 2010. And the Republicans were able to gerrymander things up again. So uh-huh. these, these are a lot of the suburban Philadelphia areas where at least until recently, Republicans have been doing really well, even as say Hillary Clinton and Obama were also carrying those areas. So, uh-huh. it, so it'll be interesting if we get a big break there. And in these Pennsylvania counties, we have about we have three Republicans who are in competitive congressional districts. They all won easily last year. This time, they all at least have one interesting Democratic candidate running against them. Primaries mm-hmm. really need to shake out. We don't know who's going to go through, who's going to be strong, who isn't. But they're getting real challenges that they didn't really have last time. And you know, if Democrats, if Voters there are angry enough at Trump that they're going after their recorders of deeds and coroners and clerks of court, then their congressmen have a lot to worry about. I see. Now, you you have been – while we're talking about local counties down to the county level, Daily Coast Elections, of course, has, has been doing a very comprehensive president by legislative district project that you've been heavily involved in for for all of the states in the country from the results of the 2016 elections. Other than keeping junkies like myself up late at night reading this fascinating (laughs) stuff, what do we learn from such a, a project as this that we can apply at the national level? Um, one thing I think is very useful is for knowing what seats to target. In uh-huh. The Pennsylvania State House alone, that's 200 and full alone. Without, uh-huh. it's, it's tough to know what, what seats are vulnerable, which seats aren't without a lot of good data. And, mm-hmm. no, and the data can only tell you so much. There are always elections that look like they should be competitive that aren't, that look like they shouldn't be that are, but it does give you, it does give you a very good starting point. And partially because all of these elections, they don't have as much money going in. Knowing what races to really concentrate on, where you can really get a good bang for your buck, is really important. And nationally, for one thing, so much of the policies we've been, we saw under the Obama era came from the states. So many right-wing policies, and that's continued under Trump. And being able to, at the very least, take some of these legislative chambers or reduce Republican majorities can really stop that from coming in. And also mm-hmm. the big, big thing, gerrymandering. We, mm-hmm. um, the Republicans in 2010, when they controlled everything, took control, they made their maps as tough as possible. And if we want to reverse a lot of those gerrymanders, we really need to concentrate on the state level. We need to have governors mm-hmm. who can veto bad maps and maybe flip some chambers so Republicans can't do this again. And a lot of these places like Pennsylvania, they're going to be tough to flip, but if we can just make inroads, we can just make things so much better. We can keep, mm-hmm. we can just hold, we just need to just hold the line till, and be able to have a seat at the table next time redistricted comes up and then we can get much better maps. Mm-hmm. And that's going to have an effect. Okay. Now I'm, I'm going to throw you a curveball before I throw it over to Catherine. Um, because a lot has been written about this lately. I, I have not been paying a lot of attention to it until now, but things seem to really starting to be crystallizing in in the uh, Robert Mueller uh, 
investigation. And my question to you is a simple one. What does your gut tell you? Should Mike Pence be quietly preparing the groundwork for a transition from a Trump presidency to a Pence presidency? Wow. Um, I mean, there's just so much about what the Russians did and didn't do that we still don't know. But mm-hmm. I would say I would say no, because Trump is many things, but he's not the type of person who's just going to quit when things get awful. And hopefully we'll hopefully, you know, he'll face the music for what he and his campaign did. But as we saw, Sir Access Hollywood supposedly killed his campaign. He's not the type of person who's just going to bail And I don't mean to sound like that I'm admiring him in any way about that, but that's just Mm -hmm. what he's done. And he's probably done things that he should deserve to be impeached for, but even if we have the House, it would take two-thirds of the Senate to convict him and remove him from office. And Mm -hmm. the Republican Party has just been so loyal to him, and Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure I want to think of what it would take for enough Republicans to agree to convict him. I'm not sure what horrible thing he would have to do to get even them to if there is such a thing that would get enough republican senators to say yeah we need to remove you from office so i just don't mm-hmm. see that as a realistic possibility anytime soon and and, so, and uh, with, with mike pence do you picture him as a loyal soldier right to the end with him i i think so he's from a different wing of the party than Trump. He's much more establishment, but I don't Mm -hmm. know if their views are much different. And he's, at least publicly, he's very, very loyal. We just saw with the tax bill, Pence spent about three minutes just straight up drooling over Trump and saying how great he was. And Trump Mm -hmm. was just like sitting there smiling. So behind the scenes, I don't know what's happening, but I, I think he's, I think he's hitched his wagon to Trump and he's going to take it as far as it goes. All right, and with that, I am going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Good evening. Thanks so much for being on tonight, and happy holidays and all that. Happy holidays. <laughs> I want. I really was interested in the art, the piece that you wrote about um, redistricting and gerrymandering and voter registration. It was really interesting sort of combination of those things. I'm wondering what you think is um, what the chances are of getting some of these nonpartisan um, reapportionment um, commissions in place by 2020. Oh, so um, that piece I think you're referring to, um, that was done by one of my colleagues, Stephen Wolf, oh, who I'm I sorry. think I has been a guest. Um, I'm sorry. But in term, there are some good ballot measures that look like they will be on the ballot. Um, Michigan's going to have one, and it, it looks like the signature is good to get one, to get it on the ballot for 2018. So that would be huge if we could get something like that for redistricting. But these things are always tough to do. Um, if you ask most people, they'll say, yes, we should have independent redistricting, but you really need a lot of money to run a good campaign against that. We saw that in Ohio, in Ohio actually, in 2012. The organizers put this anti-gerrymandering thing on the ballot, but they didn't really have much enthusiasm for it for a variety of reasons, and Republicans just said, do you want, Paul, to, do you want some unelected body drawing your districts? And Without anyone to push back on that, voters have said, no, well, we like the status quo just fine. So Republicans know they have the most to lose if their redistricting goes forward, and I would expect them to pour in a lot of money into poisoning the well to make it sound evil. So it's definitely something we need to be on guard about. We have a really good argument against it, but you need money and you need people – you need grassroots support to – actually broadcast that argument well and also it's like in a state like georgia where the democrats had control for so long and we were just as bad well maybe not just as bad but almost as bad as the republicans in drawing our districts so they always bring that up you know like when we were went through this in 2010 that was well you guys did it you know so it's it's kind of a tough battle but i hope i'm i'm hopeful for it because i think it would make a huge difference in um you know how how everything is done. I mean, I just when you look at these maps, it's just remarkable that they're able to pull them. I mean, the ones in Georgia are crazy. Our state legislature maps are insane. They're this uh, crazy. Um, what other um, 
reapportionment, um, it looks like, you know, there's some rumors going around about what's going to happen and how the population is and demographics are changing. What do you what what are the highlights of those of of what's coming up? What do you think is going to be, you know, most notable, I guess? Um yeah, there there was just there was just some some census estimates looking at what states may gain or lose a congressional district or two. Um Stephen Wolf, he's really the expert on this, but he did a really good post with some some maps showing where things look like they'll go and for the most part, the states that will be losing – that look like they'll be losing a congressional district or at least are on the bubble are Rust Belt states, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois, New York. That's less Rust Belt but really close. And um, the states yeah. that look like they'll be gaining gaining, um, or at least have a good chance to gain, Florida, definitely. Texas looks like it'll gain three or so. Um, Arizona – North Carolina, maybe even Montana, it might go from one to two for the first time in decades. Wow! Well, yeah. that would be and amazing. <laughs> so, so short term, we don't really know because if you reran, if you looked at these estimates, you re and you reran the 2016 election under those, Trump would gain maybe two or three electoral votes. Hillary Clinton would lose the same. So, you know, it could matter in a close race, but. Not that not enough to affect the outcome that year. But what's interesting is even though Trump would gain short term, a lot of the states that look like they're going to gain a district are states that trended towards Clinton, even though she didn't necessarily win them. While the states that are look like they'll lose one or are maybe on the bubble, they're states that trended towards Trump for the most part. There are some exceptions here and there, but so long term, if places like Arizona. North Carolina become more more competitive for Democrats, better for Democrats, and the Rust Belt gets worse. It could benefit Democrats a bit. That would, be, we'll that would be a relief. <laughs> well, thanks yeah. a lot for being on, and I'm going to turn it back to David. Yes, uh, Jeff, kind of piggybacking off of Catherine with the real. I noticed that that California is scheduled to lose maybe as many as two congressional districts. Now, my understanding is. California is still growing, obviously with Silicon Valley out there and you know Los Angeles always being a magnet for people. Um, was it just the fact that they just aren't growing like they used to, or uh, what has caused California, you know, for the first time and seemingly forever, not to, or to lose electoral votes? That's that's a really good question. Uh, I'm a Californian who left, so maybe I'm maybe I'm responsible and so a little bit, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of it was just decades ago, California was the boom territory. It was a good place to move. Things were fairly cheap. There was a really growing aerospace industry in Southern California, Silicon Valley, and things have really gotten a lot more expensive. There are just so many parts of California where, you know, don't move there unless you have a six-figure income already. It's just not as welcoming a place for newcomers and It's still growing, but I do think that definitely puts a cap on how much it can grow. Yeah, I I just noticed that, and I noticed Georgia didn't um, get a congressional district for the first time in in a while, too, Um, although I guess I've got a little better handle on that one because Atlanta's growth kind of tapered a little bit, and the rest of the state does not grow the same way. Well, let me kind of switch gears again and – you know, we're kind of into special elections these days since we've started to win them. Uh, we've been, you know, making a lot of progress on a lot of them. But there's another one coming up on March 13th. Now, this may be a – actually, it looks like there's a convention, so I guess this is the whole deal on March 13th to replace Tim Murphy, who resigned when, in, I guess you might say, shame. And uh, we're down to Rick Saccone and Connor Lamb. And I've heard really good things about Connor Lamb as a candidate. Kind of break that race down and tell us what our odds are in that Republican-leaning district. Right. So as you said, Tim Murphy, the Republican incumbent, he resigned under not-so-great circumstances. He um, – let's just say he, he wanted his – he was a very anti-abortion congressman who wanted his mistress to have an abortion. And he also ran this really hellish office. He might not have been breaking any laws, but the way he treated – his staffers and interns just horrifying. 
So Republicans kind of pushed him out to get get him off the headlines. The district, it's Pennsylvania's 18th district. It's around Pittsburgh. It includes a bit of the Pittsburgh suburbs and some really rural counties out there in Western Pennsylvania. And on paper, it's not a really good district for Democrats. Trump won about 58% of the vote. Hillary Clinton won about 39%. It wasn't very much different in 2012. But there's some really interesting things about it this time. Like you said, the Democrat, Connor Lamb, he's a veteran. He's a former federal prosecutor. He's getting some buzz. Even Republicans think that he's a good candidate. And the guy the Republicans nominated, Rick Saccone, he's a state representative. He's also a veteran, but he doesn't – even a lot of Republicans don't seem very high on him. He ran for the Senate this year, and he spent about nine months of the campaign, barely made an impression, barely raised any money, just kind of got lucky and won the nomination through a convention for the seat. So he doesn't really seem like a very impressive guy. And it is a tough seat, but there are some interesting things about it. For one thing, even though a lot of these counties in western Pennsylvania, they've been voting, it's kind of the opposite of the Philly suburbs like we were talking about earlier, where – here out in this part of Western Pennsylvania, it's been voting Republican for almost everything, but Democrats still have a lot of influence in the counties. I think that – I believe that they have control of all four county governments' district, and that includes some really, really red territory. So that's not a small thing. So you might – you do still have a lot of voters who maybe haven't voted Democratic in a long time for Congress or president, but they still consider themselves Democrats and are still at least open to voting for a Democrat. And a thing about this, this district is actually really interesting. A lot of people kind of classify it as this working class white district and kind of throw it in with a lot of other working class white districts that trended really far towards Trump last year. But if you look at its education, if you look at the percentage of residents who have bachelor's degrees, it's, it's more than it's um higher than most of the country. Like it's not like insane, but it's definitely more than a lot of, it's definitely in the upper half, same with median income. So it doesn't really fit the same profile as a lot of the districts is kind of considered. So it's this fairly well-educated, fairly high income district. And in 2016, what we saw was education seemed to be like one of the big things determining whether someone's going to flip from Obama to Trump or the other way around, not even really income tracked, but it was, if you have a bachelor's degree, you're more likely to go from to Clinton. If you don't more likely to go for Trump, and we didn't really ever see that before. So this district didn't really move much from 2012 to 2016, but it could be interesting terror. It could be interesting territory this time. And there's one other thing um, I want to bring up with this district. One thing we've seen with House Democrats is so far they've only run some ads, but they've really focused more on Paul, attacking Paul Ryan than attacking Donald Trump. And I think that's interesting. And what some people have written about this is a lot of a lot of voters, even voters who don't like Trump, they see him as not a really a Republican. They see him as something different. So it's really tough to link Republicans to Donald Trump even though they vote with him on so many things, they just see him as a different type of force. But Paul Ryan, he's Mr. Republican, and he's not popular. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see if in this district that Trump won pretty handedly, we'll see Democrats try to link Saccone to Paul Ryan and see if we can get any traction out of that. And Republicans are, of course, going to link Connor Lamb to Nancy Pelosi. They do it all the time, and they'll probably draw a little bit of blood over that. But It'll be interesting to see if Ryan is the animal that Demo- that Republicans have made Pelosi for so long. And, you know, if Ryan's unpopularity is enough to help move districts like this, that Trump easily won towards Democrats, then we could see a lot in the fall. Yes, I believe this district is the same area. There's a show, a reality show called uh, Friday Night Tyke Steel Town, and it includes places like Aliquippa, and Stowe Rocks, and um, there's a valley, Monaca, all these places, Beaver Falls, and they show these towns, and these towns are not towns that have, in many ways have seen better days economically, and they're kind of depressed area. Now, one interesting thing is last season was happened during the election, and in Aliquippa, Bill Clinton came and did a rally, and, and one of the main figures who's a coach, who's also the mayor of that town, 
introduced Bill Clinton. And then in another town, Donald Trump had a rally. So this is obviously a battleground area of the presidential campaign based on um, what was on that show. And, and so I found that I'd, that little area, if you're kind of interested in if you can get a hold of some footage of uh, Friday Night Pike Still Town, it'll kind of give you a lay of the land if you, if you want to go that deep. Um, Jeff, I had one more question, and this is one, one I prepped, but it came up when you mentioned Paul Ryan and, and other folks. Um, Republicans are by no means doing well in these special elections. Either they're losing elections and, and uh, they never would have lost, or they're winning close elections that they should have no business uh, being close at all. And yet, when it comes to policy, Republicans still feel, feel emboldened to try to repeal the Affordable Health Care Act. They passed the tax cuts just the other day. They voted on them multiple times to do it. They kept putting these votes down on record. These things are not popular in the polls, and yet they keep doing it. Either A, do they just not care uh, and they think they can win despite all these unpopular policies? Or B, do they think they're going to be out no matter what, and they might as well pass everything they can while they still have some power? Um, I think I think part of it is they want to pass everything while they still have power. And, well, just look, that's – I don't, I don't support any of the policies they're pushing for, but if you have the majority, you – you really need to use it because you're not you might not keep it for very long. So that's what I guess from a political science perspective they should be doing. But I think there's another thing for the tax bill. Yeah, it was horribly unpopular with voters, but one group it was very very popular with was Republican donors. And Republicans were really afraid that if the bill had failed, their donations would just dry up. And we'll we'll see. We're gonna get. Um, the fundraise, the campaign fundraising updates at the end of January, so we'll have a good sense for whether this is helping them with donors. But you know, if you can keep your donors happy and you can make and you can raise a lot of money, then that can go a long way to being able to survive passing unpopular things. But if you're, especially if you're Republicans, when you're dependent on so many rich people, if your donations dry up, then you're in real trouble. So I think. From an election perspective, it did make sense to try to pass this, so we'll see whether it plays out for them, but I don't think it was just them being crazy or anything like that. Well, that's an interesting observation, and one I don't think it's on the surface. Um, well, let me be fair to uh, Catherine and Tim and see if they have any more questions uh, before we let you go, Jeff. Catherine? I'm, I'm good. I know Tim has another question. Tim? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact, and it, it's kind of along the lines of what you guys are talking about now. And my thoughts are to nationalizing the election uh, next year. Obviously, whether you want to call them waves or landslides, we don't want those to stop at state lines now, do we? And normally, they do not historically. So you talked about the unpopularity, Jeff, of of Paul Ryan and how the Democrats are, are going to tie him in with this special election. Uh, we know that the president's approval ratings are in the low 30s, which is, you know, historical in itself. We, ju we just don't see this out of a first-year president. So if we want to nationalize the election um, next November, uh who Who is the poster child? Is it Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell, the Republican leadership, or is it Donald Trump? That's well, that's the billion-dollar question right there. It's probably all three of them, but how you focus it and what you focus on in some areas will be different than others. There are just some areas, especially like Northern Virginia, where you have a competitive congressional race where Trump is a four-letter word. And and you you probably want to really focus on him there, but but there's going to be a lot of these districts that did trend that did trend towards Trump, where the Republican where he might not be that popular, but he's at least seen as sort of different than Republicans, where Paul Ryan might be the guy to go after. But in 2012 or 2010, the really horrible year for us, we did see the Republicans. They did go after Obama, but they really turn their fire on Pelosi, and I think that might have shaken loose some voters who might have 
personally liked Obama, but really bought into the idea that she was all that they hated about national Democrats. And we might see the same thing with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. And a final question. Is Paul Ryan in trouble in his own district? That's a, that's a good question. His district, it's Southern Wisconsin. Um, it voted for Donald Trump about 53% to 42%. It voted for the Romney-Ryan ticket in 2012 by a much closer margin, but they still won it by about five percentage points. He has an interesting Democratic opponent, Randy Bryce. He's an, an iron worker. He came in, he's really touted his working class roots. He's raised a lot of money from donors who just really want to get rid of Paul Ryan. And it's Bryce is still kind of an untested guy. He's run for various offices and lost before. Um, mm -hmm. And he's going to be – and, you know, if Ryan gets scared enough, he's going to have more than enough money to, to basically go after him in every way possible. Mm -hmm. Ryan is – Ryan could not – will not worry about money, that's for sure. But – and it's it's an area we just haven't done well in in a long time, but it's mm -hmm. worth keeping an eye on. I would I'd bet against it. It's Ryan sells a lot of room for error, and this is one area in the country, maybe the only area where people really do like Paul Ryan, or at least they used to. And from mm -hmm. what I heard, he's what I've heard, he still is reasonably popular in, around Racine and around this area. So mm -hmm. it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. And, you know, in 1994, infamously, the Democratic Speaker of the House, Tom Foley, he lost re-election. So mm -hmm. it can happen. And, you know, just being able to tie Paul Ryan up would be good. I would bet against it happening, but it's worth keeping an eye on, definitely. All right. And with that, I will throw it back to David. Yes. Well, Jeff, we thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. Uh, before we go, if you want to share with folks, uh, obviously you have a main um, area on Delico's elections, but if there's anything else, Twitter, whatever, that people could read your work at, let us know. Great. Um, yeah, you can find us at Delicos Elections, um, and you can follow us on Twitter at DK Elections. And this week, this week it's the holiday week. Um, things are pretty slow, so. We have some we have some content, but we're going to be picking up newswise next week. And there's just, there's going to be a lot to follow in 2018. This is this is might be the weirdest year that we're ever going to see between between just up, what's looking like a wave against the Republicans, such an important year for gerrymandering, with all this stuff we're finding out about various politicians and candidates and their past transgressions. It's this might be a year unlike any other, and it's going to be interesting. So we are going to be writing a lot about what's going on. So hope you'll follow us. So we have um, an email newsletter that goes out every day morning. Um, it's the Daily Coast Elections Morning Digest. You can sign up for that for free. It goes straight to your inbox. So that's where we that's where we sum up what's going on and our takes on everything. So we hope you'll subscribe to that. Yeah. Definitely so. Well, Jeff, thanks again for coming on the Kudzu Vine. Thank you Thank for having you. me. Thank you. Happy New Year. Thank Happy New you, Year. sir. Yes, that was Jeff Singer of Daily Co's Elections, one of our uh, frequent and favorite guests we've had on the Kudzu Vine over uh, recent years. Um, well, let's take a little more time, and since Jeff has just taken us all across the nation from California to uh, Pennsylvania to all points in between, we're going to come back to our home state of Georgia um, and talk about maybe two topics. We'll just kind of see how the first one goes and see how much time we got for the other one. And this past weekend in the Atlanta Constitution, they analyzed a new um, bill uh, that, that's going to be put forth the legislature to give people a tax credit uh, of up to $50,000 spread out over a 10-year period. It's called the Rule, Relocate, and Reside program. Now, the reason I do find this interesting, even if, even if you're outside of Georgia, rural areas losing population and economic um, power, if you will, is probably something that is not you know, just in Georgia. I believe it's probably in some ways in all 50 states. Um, is this the right answer? Is this thing without problems? Uh, probably not. But it, it is an interesting uh, 
um, idea that they've come up with. The, the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, of Blue Ridge, which is probably an area that actually has grown some um, in the Georgia mountains, is pushing this. And they're looking, I think, more at uh, eastern and southern Georgia even more. But it says right now 124 of Georgia's 159 counties are targeted. That's virtually uh, three-quarters of the state. And it talked about how uh, so many areas are losing population. I mean, literally, there are counties where they have more deaths than births. And um, yeah, there were some other figures in here, but it was just uh, – oh, 11 counties actually had a larger uh, population um, now than they did um, – well, I'm sorry, I'm reading this. Let me see. Only 11 rural Georgia counties have a larger population now uh, than in 1860. And so that's how – I mean, there's very few places in America or even the world that have um, were bigger over 140 years ago. Um, Catherine, you live in a highly populated area, the highest, highest populated area of Georgia and one of the highest populated countries in the, uh, in the uh, country in Atlanta. What's your thoughts on this? Well, you know, I understand the desire to, you know, repopulate rural Georgia. There's, you know, uh, and attract people to these places to, you know, grow their um, tax base and, you know, buy the products that are being sold there. And but the problem is, is that at least in the first glance of this of this article about the bill, I think if you want to draw people to rural rural Georgia, and we're not talking about like rural like just outside of Atlanta we're talking about like you said south and um and eastern Georgia you've got to have some jobs and I didn't see any job program in there that would draw people to these places as you said they're losing population they're losing population for a reason because there's no jobs there I mean it's just kind of I mean I guess you know like there's there are and there's, you know, we're losing rural hospitals. We're losing, um, you know, manufacturing jobs that were once in some of these places. So what's the draw? And then there was some talk about retirement. But if you're retiring, you're going to want to be near, you know, decent medical care. And um, a lot of these rural areas don't have decent medical care. So I I'm I'm I, I I like the idea. I I I understand the idea, but it doesn't seem to be fully fleshed out yet. So maybe if they've got some other ideas about how to employ people or if there's going to be some, you know, like some investment in rural hospitals because that, that would generate some jobs and draw people. So I'm I'm intrigued by it, but I feel like it's not really a fully thought through idea yes tim um this has been an idea that's been around quite a while the last democratic lieutenant governor mark taylor had a very popular program or very touted program called one georgia and it talked about um trying to grow areas outside the city of atlanta um uh, kathy cox one of the last if maybe the last democratic secretary of state she actually moved um, a lot of the non-essential didn't have to happen at the capital government services that were under her offices outside of Atlanta. I think a lot of them ended up moving to Macon, which is probably not the most um, impoverished slash non-growing area of Georgia. It still grows to a point because it's on I-75 and and has a decent-sized population base, but still the intent was there to find other places. Um what more can we do to to realize this, even if the tax part, uh, you know, savings of this is not something that's doable? Uh, okay. The first thing the legislature is going to want to do, and this article mentioned it prominently, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people in the state legislature thinks before you start in with this House Rural Development Council idea that was created by the speaker you have got to get broadband access. Oh, yeah. All across the state, good broadband access and cheap. We have looked, for instance, at, how, at, at what a success has been in the city of Chattanooga, which is, of course, 
is is a much larger area. But some smaller places have done it too with great success. But what it takes now is a great deal of government uh, interaction with it to really get it going in a broad way. And I believe the legislature is going to take this thing up. Uh, and talk about this this year before they ever talk about this rural relocate and reside program. Catherine has it right. The the soft underbelly is is jobs. Uh, I, I know that there's some good good things going on with this, like you know a ten year uh, tax deductibles up to fifty thousand dollars, and cut some couples could get a hundred thousand and. There's going to be a lot of eligible counties like, I don't know, upwards of 70% of the counties in the state will be eligible. And uh, but, but still, still, my county, even though it's not down there, I can speak to this because I live in the prototypical rural county with all the problems that come with it. Chattooga County lost 2,000 residents. It, it, since the last census, and believe me, that it, when you're in a county of twenty five thousand, you lose two thousand of them. Yeah. That is a big chunk of your tax base to lose that you cannot afford to lose when you're already a tier one county. Forty three percent of the workforce in this county has to drive somewhere else, including myself to work. We are a classic commuter county. There, there, there's, there's not jobs here. Uh, we don't have a hospital in this county. We have to drive, you know, upwards of 25 miles to get to a hospital. We, we don't have a lot of infrastructure, especially of, of the entertainment and, and, and the restaurant variety, that sort of thing. We don't have a major restaurant in this county. We don't have a bowling alley in this county. This county does not have a movie theater. We don't have like a, a Crystal, a Hardee's, a Huddle House, a Waffle House. We, we, we have two decent-sized grocery stores in the whole county. So we, we are facing a lot, and with a small tax base and being 40 miles away from you know, any Georgia interstate. Uh, it, it is a big, big, big problem, and uh, I, I'm not sure what the answer is. Maybe tourism is part of the answer, but I guarantee you they're going to go with broadband first, David, before they even talk about this. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think broadband will be a little easier to get you than Huddle House. Um, yeah. I, I know what you mean, and, and, and and you're right about the entertainment piece. You know, somebody, let's just say they get married or, or they're single and, and they're thinking about somewhere to be. So many times in that, you know, out of college until you, you know, begin to have kids, entertainment is a huge piece of um, your life. And having uh, – and, you know, how are you going to create all of those things you mentioned, a, a, you know, a decent sit-down restaurant, um, the, you know, things to do like movies and um, bowling alleys. And those are basic. I mean, you think about comparing it to Atlanta or Chattanooga or even Savannah and places like that. That's one thing I think is Georgia is such a massive county land size that there's going to be no way to um, grow all of these areas. They may end up being, you know, seeing that, Let's pick a few targeted areas away from Atlanta to try to grow first. Um, you know, is it easier to grow a Waycross than it is a Sparta? Um, you know, so, is it easier to go somewhere near the coast? How much can we grow off of um, a non-interstate city? Things like that. And so that's going to be interesting to see. Let's kind of sneak in and, and start a discussion that I have a feeling will hit many weeks between now and November. And that would be the Georgia governor's race. And one interesting thing to start this off with, looking at this bill on the Republican side, you've got candidates like Casey Cagle from Gainesville, a growing area, um, Michael Williams, kind of growing ex-urban area. You go on the Democratic side, both Stacys, um, Abrams and Evans are from DeKalb and Cobb, or they represent DeKalb and Cobb. 
um, and Stacy Evans actually is from one of those uh, Catoosa, one of those uh, suburban counties of Chattanooga, all growing areas. So there's none of those candidates are from uh, one of these uh, rural counties. And I'm not sure. I know there's some more Republican candidates. Uh, Brian Kemp, I think, is from Athens or represented that area. Uh, none of these candidates come from any of those areas, and I wonder how that will impact the race. Um, but, Catherine, uh, let's just start on the Republican side, um, <clears throat> since that might be safer for us to start on, since we're not in that fight exactly. Uh, what's your thought on, on all the candidates over there? Well, it seems I, – I, I honestly haven't been look, looking that closely, but it seems like Brian Kemp probably has the best name recognition – but he's also got name recognition because he's kind of a buffoon. So I'm not sure <laughs> how that helps him. <laughs> um, and then there's uh, what's that other guy? Uh, the guy who just resigned his um, Senate seat and down in. That would be Hunter Hill or. No, the, oh, yeah, that's would, right. There's Hunter Hill. No, the other guy. Um, Williams. Yeah, Williams, no. right? Yeah. No, not Williams. Anyway. Um, there's a special election for that in January. and uh, So I think it's going to be, a, you know, a cattle call at first and then, you know, probably Hunter Hill, Brian Kemp w- might, because of their name recognition and because they might sort of filter up a little bit and get some of the attention. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure how um, how ready for prime time Brian Kemp is really. Yeah, so, Tim Casey Cagle's K- been the statewide oh, officer right. for the longest. I forgot about Casey Cagle. And the polls he's that definitely. come out, he's leading the polls. Although he seems to be more the establishment candidate, and that can yeah. be poison in this political environment with Republican primaries. Um, do you think he can maintain the lead, or does he kind of fall apart? Well, uh, you know, in such a big race, if you uh, are supposedly the consensus favorite, uh, you want to be as close to 50% as you can. Now, take this with the grain of salt in that where it came from. Secretary of State Kemp's campaign conducted an internal poll done by the Wicker Group on this race. They had Cagle at 34. They had Kemp at 13. They had Hill sitting there at two, Williams at one. Uh, not sure 48% and the other 2% was divided between uh, the uh, minor candidates. I believe there's six so far. Um, the second choice, they also ask in this poll, the second choice of voters, and Kemp right there beats Cagle by 15 points as the second choice, and I think that's where he's hanging his hat. Kemp might not be in a bad place right now if he emerges as the anti-Kegel guy. Kemp wants to somehow position himself as anti-establishment, even though he's right in the middle of the establishment, (laughs) and and thus appealing to these rural voters we've been talking about, who would have supported, you know, Donald Trump in, in, in heavy numbers in counties like mine last year, and also, uh, would be, pretty much more likely to vote even in a, in a depressed Republican electorate. So I, I, Kemp is not in a bad place at the moment. If this polling is true, but still, uh, I, get, I guess Cagle, if he's sitting at 34, he's got to be a little nervy about that. He's been the lieutenant governor for a long time. He's been out there. He's been a part of these governor's programs been a part of some major legislation he's built his own coalition of elected officials like jeff mullis up here who's a who's a big casey cagle guy uh and and so you know kemp kemp might really might really give him some trouble there yeah i think think casey cagle it's good and bad he's i guess the adult in that primary, and he actually seems yeah. like he used government to govern, um, which is kind of a idea in some quarters of the Republican Party. Um, so therefore, he does push things like technical high school and things that actually have meaningful change to Georgians. 
But in the Republican primary, you begin to think, well, this could be a liability. And to me, it's going to come down is, is one, the Republican voters say, look, we actually have to have a person that understands and wants to use government to some point to, to actually govern. In many ways, like Nathan Deal has done at times, um, wants to recruit new businesses and, and won't sign just anything immediately. Um, unfortunately, sign one of those things the next time it came around. But um, we'll actually look at Georgia's long-term interest. Or are they going to say, okay, let's find that firebrand uh, out type. And then it gets down to two people for me. It's either going to be Brian Kemp has been willing to, you know, do what it takes to make a name for himself, like Catherine was alluding to. He kind of brandished that into being that anti-Kegel, like you were saying, Tim. Or does Michael Williams, is he able to use the fact that he was the first and at many times in the race only Republican uh, politician that supported Donald Trump, and can he run full crazy outsider and and harness this uh, you know complete maverick outsider label that seems to be the winning um, factor in so many Republican primaries, just like we saw in Alabama where they turned out the appointed incumbent Luther Strange didn't try to elect a congressman, but then picked Roy Moore. In that kind of environment, can Michael Williams use that disadvantage? I mean, he's been protesting teachers recently. I mean, he'll really go out there and do whatever uh, to, to, you know, make that label for himself. Kathy, do you it, think it, Michael Williams – okay, Tim, go ahead. I was just going to throw in the question to go with it to send to Catherine. Is next year, though, the way it's shaping up the year to do that? Now go ahead. The year to be the outsider? Is next year the year to be the outsider? To, to be the crazy, crazy Trump outsider. Yeah, I'm not so sure it is, but, um, you know, it is Georgia, so it's hard to – sometimes <laughs> hard to guess. But I'm completely sorry that I for, totally forgot about Casey Cagle. I, I mean – I think, um, given the you know madness of this first year of Trump, that someone like Casey Cagle, who um, you know has a pretty calm and um, reasoned—I mean, I don't agree with him on much, but he has been—he is. Um, I think that people might be looking for that sort of. Um, calm and uh, measured um, approach to government, um, and that might serve him well. But it could be that they like Trump, and that so someone like Michael Williams will um, will be popular in the Republican Party um, in the primary. So then, then it it's sort of like okay, Republican Party, what do you want? Like if you if you uh, come out of the primary with some, you know, wackadoodle, is that going to be good for you in the general? Is it going to, is it, or is it going to be, you know, a Roy Moore, Doug Jones kind of situation? Probably not to that extreme, but um, so it should be interesting to see how they, how the Republicans, um, you know, what how they line up and how they choose. We have yes. we have almost a I year, so a who knows what? And it, and it, a lot will depend on what happens in the legislature, um, in the legislative session too. You know how mm-hmm. how they're how whatever they do in the legislative session, how the public responds to it will probably help uh, determine how they run for office, right? Because mm-hmm. so it's 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 going to be a long year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, and we haven't I mean, even I, talked I, about the Democrats scenario, yet. And then I'm gonna, <laughs> I know we, we, we're not even going to get that till next week, and then so get ready. Um, but Tim, I'm going to give you the final word, but I want to kind of set up a scenario that I could see happening. I see a, a republic, a religious freedom bill coming, and it's probably further to the right than the last one. They pass it through the legislature, and then Nathan Dill vetoes it again. Because he has word that the Amazon 2 headquarters, if they pass that, there's no way that it will um, come to Georgia. And then in the Republican primary, they all have to take a position on it. 
and it becomes this mm. major issue throughout the campaign. And really for Cagle, he would have to take a position on it, and it would be interesting to see where he fell in that. Tim? Mm-hmm. And the final word I want to give here is on what we've been talking about with the Rural Relocated and Reside Program. I think it's going to go down in flames for one reason, and we talked about it before we went on the air, and that is money and this anti-tax stuff that's going on with the Republicans right now. They are not going to be wanting to talk about raising any type of revenue on the state income tax level to pay for such a program right now. It will not go base well with their base at all. All right. For that, we've had the final kudzu vine of 2017. We're not going to be on on New Year's Eve. Uh, we're going to come back. Um, we're planning the next Sunday, um, unless there's something too pressing before then. And we've already said we're going to discuss the Democratic half of this race next week and we're going to have guests and everything else but until then see you in 2018 happy new year good night good night guys we are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united america still